You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're talking about Islam. about you, but many times when I've seen a presentation given, such as at the local university by Rashio Christie, and we talk about the Bible, Muslims will come up and say, hey, uh, don't you know the Bible has been changed over time, but the Quran, it hasn't been. It's stood reliable over and over. Is that true? How did we get the Quran? We are to talk about it today. I've got uh, Dr. Andy Bannister on the show. He is the director of a Solar Center for Public Christianity and adjunct speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, speaking and teaching regularly throughout the UK, Europe, Canada, the USA, and the wider world. From universities to churches, business forums to TV and radio, he regularly addresses audiences of both Christians and those of all faiths and none on issues relating to faith, culture, politics, and society. He holds a PhD in Islamic studies and has taught extensively at universities across Canada, the USA, the UK, and further afield on both Islam and philosophy. He's also an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Center for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. He is the author of an oral formulaic study of the Quran, a groundbreaking and innovative study that reveals many of the ways the Quran was first composed, and he wrote, Five Lessons from Whose Lives We Can Learn, an exciting and fast-moving look at the lives of five incredible giants of Christian faith. In his latest book, which we have interviewed him on, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist or The Dreadful Consequences of Very Bad Arguments, is a humorous engagement for new atheism. He also co-wrote and presented the TV documentary Burning Questions. When not traveling, speaking, or writing, he's a keen hiker, mountain climber, and photographer. He's married to Astrid, and they have two children, Katriana and Christopher. Dr. Bannister, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, thank you for that uh, introduction, Nick, and great to be with you. It was lots of fun talking to you uh, a couple of years ago, so looking forward to our conversation today. Now, if my audience doesn't remember that conversation and doesn't remember much about you and who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, so it's interesting, Nick, that we are talking about uh, Islam mm-hmm. tonight because it was really Islam that led me into this. So back in the late 1990s, I was a youth worker working for a group of churches in London, in England, hadn't really thought about apologetics or philosophy, theology, any of these things. Mm-hmm. And then one day, um, uh, a gentleman came to our church at a seminar on Islam, and he was heading up uh, uh, some work at a place in London called Speaker's Corner, which is part of one of our big parks in London, where on a Sunday afternoon, you can stand on a ladder, 
or a soapbox to talk about anything. And he'd found there were lots of Muslims going there to talk, preach about Islam. So he'd gone to preach to the preachers. And his whole story was fascinating. At the end of it, he said to me, as we talked, he said, well, why don't you come to Speaker's Corner next weekend? He come and see what we do. Um, so I turned up to Speaker's Corner the following week to discover he brought a spare ladder. And his, uh, his understanding of the words, come and see what we do, actually meant get on a ladder next to him. And I said, well, I've never talked to Muslims before. He said, oh, they're easy. I said, I've never preached in, on the street before. He went, oh, it's not hard. Um, both those things were wrong um, <laughs> because those Muslims I met that first Sunday at Speaker's Corner and, um, in London were uh, very well prepared in how to engage Christians and they tore my faith to pieces and sort of put the pieces in a little paper bag, patted me on the head and sent me home. And I remember thinking, well, I, I need to now do some really you know, hard thinking as to whether the things I, I thought I believed are true. And that was the beginning of a journey that took me very, very deeply into investigating my Christian faith, sort of taking it to pieces and putting it back together again. And actually, as I studied Islam as part of that, I became so fascinated by what I studied uh, that I went on to get my doctorate in uh, in Quranic studies over the next 10 years, uh, or 15 years actually, or so from that point. And uh, and as I did that, the more I studied and more I investigated, the confidence I had in my Christian faith grew tremendously. And, the, and, and my questions, critical questions about Islam got bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. And what I discovered actually, and we'll press into this more as we talk, is that I think Christians have done over the years a phenomenal job at working on the hard questions, thinking you know, about their faith in, in critical ways, right from the very start, really. Mm-hmm. Whereas most Muslims, not all, but the majority I meet, uh, you know, will throw out sound bites like the Quran has actually, you know, been changed, for example. But you only have to ask a few questions and you discover they've never actually investigated that. They've never actually thought seriously about that. And when you do so, the problems begin. Yeah, you know, um, I think we should also say when we talk about the book in oral form, you like to say the Quran. If people have read your now latest book, the atheists who didn't exist, and they pick this up and they're expecting the same kind of read, they're going to be disappointed, aren't they? They are ever so slightly, I have to say. And, and the funny thing is, of course, we're, we're almost having these interviews the wrong way around, Nick, which is yeah. just, just, just hilarious in some ways, because the the oral formulaic study of the Quran, so that grew out of my PhD, which is, mm. you know, sort of seven years of study, and then a sort of year or so turning it into the book. So sort of eight years of academic work gone into this, and it is pretty, it's pretty academic. Mm. Um, actually, there is a popular version of it, actually, if people are aware of the Academia website, if people go to uh, academia.edu, which is a site which scholars kind of use to sort of circulate papers and things, and if you put my name into academia.edu, just checking that does actually work live while we talk this through, you can still do that, you will find my paper on the, on the you should find my paper on the Quran once you've signed up and I've got a paper on there that's a kind of sort of 15 page summary of the book so it saves you $40 and uh, it's a, not quite the bluffer's guide to the, to-, to the topic but um, but it's easier so people can find that or if they really struggle to find that they can look, look me up on Facebook, ping me a message and say hey what's the link for that thing you mentioned to Nick and I'll send it to them but the book is quite heavy going um, but for people who thought about the Quran, people who are you know, as sort of, um, you know, wired to be thinkers, as I imagine many of your audience are. Um, I like to think, you know, it's a book they can work their way through, and um, and it's and, yeah, and it's exciting because I think for me it, it it raises some good questions about the Quran. It's designed to be academic. It's not a work of Christian apologetics, uh, but um, but I think there are apologetic consequences that flow from that book when you take seriously what I argue there. I hope. Yeah, I think it's really interesting about how people don't research this, and sadly this includes Christians as well. Because the way I came across your book here was I had heard this enough times at the local Ratio Christi at the university where Muslims would say this kind of thing, and I thought, oh, 
some girl like into it. So I went to the library website and I look up books on textual criticism and the Quran. I'm not looking for Christian books. I'm just looking which yeah. book seems most scholarly. I don't care about the author as long as I, I'm quite convinced they're a scholar. And I see Textual Criticism in Quran Manuscripts by Keith Small. And That's right. I order that book and I read it. Wow, this is eye-opening. And I email the Oxford Center when I find that's where he is. And that gets me in touch with you somehow. And that's how we came across yeah. this. And, you know, you go through that and you realize pretty quickly the Muslim claim that there are no variants, no changes, such which I was pretty sure was baloney, but I wanted to get it for resources myself. <laughs> it doesn't hold up very well, does it? Doesn't very it doesn't. And what's interesting is, you know, I've I'm since uh, I mean Keith is more the, the guy for textual criticism, but I've also mm-hmm. now with a few friends been working on the first kind of digital critical edition of the Quran. We're we're launching it kind of next year and actually working with some with, with some secular scholars on that too. And as part of that project, I now have on my computer a database of, you know, four roughly sort of four thousand textual variants or scribal changes actually is the is the is the area we've been working in, which is where you have a manuscript of the Quran mm-hmm. where at some point in its history a scribe has changed it from saying one thing to saying another. And um, I've got four thousand of these things completely photographed. So it's quite fun actually when I meet a Muslim who says the Quran's got no, you know, textual variants or whatever to go. Okay, well, let's open my computer. Here's the first one. Um, here's the second one. Here's the third one. How long have you got? I've got four thousand of these. Um, and what I always end up saying to Muslims, I want to be very careful as a Christian, you know, and an academic. So I wear those two hats. So that this doesn't prove the Quran is unreliable, right? But what it does prove is you can't just say there are no textual variants. You've now got to go out and do the critical work to demonstrate that the Quran you have today is the original text. Maybe you can do that. Uh, I'm not saying you can't, but I'm saying you've actually got to go and do that work. By comparison, Christians almost from the very beginning, but certainly today with with computer software and all of the modern technologies we have, you know, Christians have always been at the forefront of doing textual critical work on on the Bible. So yeah. take someone like you know Dan yeah. Wallace at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary and the database and and and, and sort of st- st- center for New Testament manuscripts he's built there. That's the you know world leading center. And it's got a Christian at the forefront of it. And you can go and look at the manuscripts. We don't hide them. Mm-hmm. Um, because of that, we have every confidence in the biblical text. Mm-hmm. But it's been hard work and it's taken careful scholarship. What I say to my Muslim friends is to go, you guys are just at the beginning of the, of the, of the process. Now, what you're more interested in about was how the Quran came to be. So before we get your account, let's imagine that you were a Muslim here and you were a Muslim scholar. How would you Alam. say... How would you say the Quran came to be? Well, the standard Muslim story, if you ask a Muslim, if I, if I were a Muslim talking to you now, would go something like this: that uh, in a roundabout sort of a, you know 610 uh, AD, uh, Muhammad. Um, had this uh, revelatory experience whereby the angel Gabriel appeared to him in a cave on the side of the mountain overlooking uh, Mecca. Mm. And uh, Gabriel revealed to Muhammad the first few verses of what were the Quran brought down from heaven. And then over the next 23 years of Muhammad's life, the angel Gabriel appears on different occasions, teaches Muhammad different bits of the Quran that he then goes and preaches to his community. And after he, after he died in 632, they were collected together and published as the text that we know as the Quran today, with no human intervention, and uh, since that time, it's been perfectly preserved. So it was uh, it was already preserved during the time of Muhammad, and then textually preserved afterwards. There's not a letter different, not a dot different, and the copy of the Quran we have today 
exactly the same as that which we had. Muhammad had, and that itself is an exact copy of the heavenly original that has existed in heaven from eternity beside Allah uh, there in heaven. That, in a nutshell, would be the standard kind of Muslim uh, understanding of what the Quran is. Except you did leave out the uh, peace be upon him over and over. Oh, did I? Oh, <laughs> yes. I'm terribly sorry. Um, I, my, my, my impersonation only goes so far. Yeah. Uh, so the thing that we want to ask, Finn, is, I mean, is this account accurate? I mean, it sounds like there were, according to this, there should be no human element whatsoever to the Quran. I mean, am I understanding? Is that what the Muslims want us to think that? That's right. That's that's basically what they want to claim. They want they want to one of the things they want to claim is there's absolutely um, no human involvement at all in any shape or any form. And so what you basically have is a divine text, right down to the very sense that it that it almost is you know, the word of God in written form. And in fact, um, it's, there's a Muslim scholar, Said Hossein Nazra, uh, so it's not a Christian saying this, Nazra is a Muslim, and he says, look, the best comparison with the Quran is not actually the Bible. It's not actually the Bible. The best comparison with the Quran is Jesus, because mm-hmm. Christians believe the word became flesh, and Muslims believe that the word became text. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, almost a divine product. Um, I mean, Muslims obviously don't worship the Quran, but they treat it with incredible reverence, you know, washing their hands before they read it, keeping it on the highest shelf and the house, treating the Arabic text of the Quran as the, you know, almost the very speech of, of God. So a much higher view of the, of the Quran. Um, and yes, Muhammad was merely a conduit, mm. um, is their claim. He had, there was no human involvement at all in its, in its production. And the thing is, they could look at us and say, well, your book definitely has human involvement. And the thing is, aside from, say, the most radical fundamentalists in Christianity, and certainly not scholars at all at that point, no Christian would deny this, would they? No, that's right. And one of the things I always say to Christians when you engage with Muslims, be very careful um, to make sure you, you've got a grip on what the, you know, the standard orthodox understanding of, of Scripture has been for 2,000 years of Christian history. Because if you're not careful and if you try and sort of run a dictation model of Scripture against the Quran, as some Christians can occasionally fall into the trap of if they get over enthu- overly enthusiastic, you're going to lose. Mm. Because we don't have a, a text that's ever claimed to be, you know, sort of God literally wrote it in his own hand. Um, the, the only account we have really of that in Scripture is the Ten Commandments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, where, where the finger of God, as it were, actually sort of writes the thing. Other than that, it's that God, through his spirit, breathes through the human authors in such a way that what you have is both a divine product, but also with human involvement. Uh, and so, you know, for a Christian, there's actually no problem with the idea that, you know, Matthew's personality is there in his gospel or Paul's personality is there in his letters. In fact, that's what you'd expect given that what uh, what the Bible actually is. And, of course, interesting parallels there to the Incarnation, because mm. in Jesus Christ, right, we have, you know, Jesus is both God and man, and that's reflected in our view of Scripture as well. So that's not a problem. Of course, it is a problem if we can find any kind of sort of uh, uh, sort of human sort of fingerprints on the text of the Quran. We'll come to that as we go. Um, because, of course, for Muslims, that shouldn't be there. For Christians, it's not a problem. But let's always be very careful as Christians dialoguing with our Muslim friends that, the, that we don't directly compare the Quran and the Bible. We need to back up a little bit and help our Muslim friends understand what the claim is uh, for the Bible. Because when, when you want to put a, cl- a claim to the test, you first need to understand what's actually being claimed. Yeah. Now, we could even grant something like, say, the research of Keith Small and say that uh, there have been changes in the transmission of the Quran over time, 
And that would not be sufficient to deny divine origin of a Quran the way the Muslims claim, right? Well, there's a couple of things going on there. I've often said that um, Keith's, Keith's work in one sense, if, if Muslims held a view of the Quran a little bit like um, Christians have of the Bible, Keith's work wouldn't be problematic. You could also, if you were a Muslim, maybe just grant, okay, maybe there have been textual changes over over time, but firstly, that the, the original was was, perf- was, was mm. from God, and that maybe through careful Muslim scholarship, we could theoretically reconstruct it. What I've tended to see happen is I think Muslims tend to put their head in the sand and sort of ignore that there's a, there's a problem. And I've often said to Muslims, you know, it's interesting, why is it that it's largely non-Muslim scholars having to do this work on the on the Quran. In fact, across the board, when I mentioned a moment ago, this kind of digital work that we've been doing, you know, when I first began doing Quranic studies back in the you know, mid 2000s, I sort of assumed that there'd be tools available like there are for studying the Bible. For the Bible we have, you know, Accordance, Bible Works, Logos Bible Software, you know, Step Bible, the list goes on. Really good tools that you can use to search the text, analyze the text digitally. Wonderful stuff out there. Um, for the Quran, there's nothing. Uh, for many years, uh, we, the, then then we got a couple of really sort of quite ropey bits bits that are you know a few people are knocked together, mm-hmm. and finally it's Western scholars who come. Okay, right, this is about time that we we had a really decent you know digital text of the Quran that we could work with as scholars analyze. But I found myself thinking, with all that money sloshing around the Gulf states and you know Saudi Arabia, the amount they put into printing Qurans and goodness knows mm-hmm. whatever. Gosh, if they just put a tiny you know one percent of that into really good scholarship, goodness knows where where the Muslim world could be, but it's never been done. And I think it's largely two reasons. I think it's the view of the Quran that it's almost untouchable. And I think there's a fear. I think it's actually yeah. a genuine fear that if they start asking the questions and sort of open the lid of the box, what might actually be discovered? So the best thing is you just don't go there. You just sort yeah. of say, oh, it's been perfectly preserved. Uh, don't ask any questions. Yeah, I'm thinking kind of amusingly, uh, David Wood of Acts 17 Apologetics, he's got a yes, video yes, with a... Bart Ehrman at this convention, which he gets a question. He says, you've invested a lot in talking about textual criticism in the Bible. Have you ever considered doing the same thing with a Quran? <coughs> and he just, the audience just laughs at him a question, and, he, and Bart Ehrman replies, when I cease to value my life, that's what I will do. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's a... Uh... I think there is a degree of that. I mean, to be, that's not entirely the case for for all scholarship. I, you know, I'm very really fair here. Together, there are Muslim scholars who are open to critical stuff. It's more, it's more they haven't uh, they haven't generally uh, they haven't generally done it. And uh, it's interesting you mentioned Barton because the other day, I, the other month, I, I had um, I did a, a debate in Canada with uh, Shabir Ali, one of the you know the Muslim world's most well known kind of apologists. Mm-hmm. And while I was preparing for that, I came across an interesting, you mentioned Bart Ehrman, I came across an interesting uh, piece somebody sent me on, on his blog about a year ago, where somebody had, had, uh, had said to him, that's actually a Muslim writer, had sort of said how much they liked his work, um, you know, because they like to use it to bash Christians. And, uh, and, 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 and Bart's response was really interesting. So I'm quite happy for my work to be used by Muslims or Mormons or Jews or Buddhists or Methodists, Episcopalians, Baptists, Lutherans or so forth. But I have to say, I don't see my scholarship as advancing the agenda of Islam. I don't think the Quran has any historical value when it comes to the historical Jesus. And neither does any critical scholar that I know of or anybody who works seriously on these things. So that was the closest I've seen Bart coming to making a sort of disparaging comment about the Quran, that why would I even be remotely interested in it? Um, you know, no one in their right mind would, would take the Quran seriously for understanding, say, the message of Jesus, which Muslims claim that it can tell you about. It's it's laughable. So, but yes, I, it was pointed out to Bart, but on several occasions that his 
his thesis actually fits, better fits um, the Quran because Bart has this idea that the scribes over, you know, orthodox scribes over time, you know, tried to change the words of the New Testament. And I think that, you know, that, that there's been good work done showing that that's not the case, actually. Maybe one or two tried, but we have such good manuscripts that hasn't caused a problem. But Keith Small's work that you mentioned and others, I think, has shown we have had that going on uh, for the Quran. When you look at some of the scribal changes that I referred to earlier, this four th- these four thousands that we've collected, and the, you know that's numbers are growing all the time. A lot of those in places do look like people trying to conform the text to their view of what it should say. And so, in one sense, I do wish Bart would, you know, have the courage to go out and 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 and, and poke around early Islam a bit, because I think he'd find lots to entertain him and, and keep him busy. Um, but he is right that in many parts of the world, that would um, that would perhaps not go down so well. Now you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We've got Dr. Andy Bannister as our guest about an oral formulaic study of the Quran. If you're listening next week, it's going to be a short one. We've got a great guest, but we're only getting her for half an hour. We're going to make most of it. Rosalia Butterfield will be our guest. If you don't know her, she was an atheistic lesbian professor. Now she's an evangelical Christian married to a pastor. It's a very interesting story. So she'll be here next week talking about her own life and such. For now, let's get back to Dr. Bannister. Now, even if we've got all these different Quran manuscripts and such, we can still get a good basic idea in many ways of what the Quran did say. I mean, we're not going to come across a Quranic manuscript that says, oh, by the way, uh, Muhammad really believed in this Trinity thing, after all. That's probably not going to happen. So assuming that this this general idea of what we have, what the Quran said, what signs can we give that show that this was a more human work than a divine work? Well, before I dive into that, I mean, that's a great question, and looking forward to digging into that in a second. Before before that, the, the one thing I would say to that is interesting... Um, and on the one hand, you're, 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 you're right. I don't think we're going to find any manuscripts to say that. But on the other hand, to go, when you read the Hadith, which are the, you know, the collections of, of, of traditions about what Muhammad said and did that were collected together some sort of two to three hundred years after his death, there's a lot of interesting things in there. I mean, one is we get some interesting Hadith telling us about the process by which the Quran was collected. Mm-hmm. And it was especially controversial around about AD 650, the third caliph of, uh, you know, in Islam, the third ruler of the Islamic Muslim community after Muhammad, uh, Uthman, um, has large numbers of Quran manuscripts that didn't agree with his official version burnt. Um, and so those are there in the Muslim histories. But also you get these stories from time to time of, um, you know, patent verses or even entire surahs of the Quran that are no longer present. And rather than dig into that now, because that could be a rabbit trail, you mentioned earlier David Wood of Acts mm. 17 Apologetics. My, yeah. One of my favorite videos that David did was his one on the on, on Aisha, who is Muhammad's favorite wife, um, mm-hmm. 
her tame sheep is uh, allegedly uh, uh, described as is eating a few verses of the Quran. Mm-hmm. And so if you Google David, if listeners Google David Wood Sheepgate, it's a hilarious video, but actually the scholarship behind David's work is very good there. But he does bring out this just this one example of a story of a verse that is no longer in the Quran that was once at one point. And there are others. The verse on stoning is a famous one that according to several hadith and traditions, the Quran once prescribed the penalty of stoning for adulterers, and you won't find that verse there today. So on the one hand, you're, you're right. We're not we're potentially not going to turn up a manuscript that says, you know, Muhammad did believe in the Trinity or, uh, you know, or whatever. There were clearly at one point Quran manuscripts that, that had portions that are not there today. Mm-hmm. Uh- Going with what we do have still, because you know, yes. so we, we could get down a rabbit hole. And again, for that, I just say Keith Small's book, Textual Criticism and Quran Manuscripts. We've tried to get him on here, but unfortunately, he's got some kind of cancer and such that really saps his energy. So he's just not able to do it that way. But let's get to what we do have. If I'm reading the Quran here, how could I tell that this is a human work and, and not really a Good divine best. one? Yeah, so that gets me into 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 my area, um, mm. Nick. So one of the things that fascinated me when I first started reading the Quran, I became quite interested by the number of passages in it that have clearly been influenced by Jewish and Christian tradition, whether it's mm. from the Bible or from sorts of intertestamental literature or Jewish legends and fables and so forth. So, for example, there is the there are two versions of the infancy uh, story of Jesus, where the angel Gabriel appears to uh, Mary and announces the birth of Jesus, that clearly look like they've shown some Christian influence. Uh, we have the story of Moses and the burning bush, for example, good Old Testament story, or the story of Jonah. Well, then we have stuff that comes out of sort of Jewish legend. One of the most famous examples in the Quran would be, uh, for example, the story of Iblis and Adam. And it's not, it was originally a Jewish story, dates to about 100 BC, we think, or possibly fractionally earlier. And it tells the story of that just after God has created uh, Adam up there in paradise, he invites all the angels to come in and, and meet the kind of newly created Adam. And he instructs, it tells them to bow down to Adam. And all the angels do so apart from one, a guy, a guy called Iblis, who refuses. And for that, Iblis is cast out of heaven and becomes Satan. And you know, he goes on to be this great tempter of humanity. And so that was a Jewish legend. It then becomes a Christian legend. We find Syriac sort of Christian sources in the sort of 300s and 400s retelling it. And, um, and then, of course, it turns up in the Quran, not just once, but seven times. And every time is different. So we have two questions, Nick, going on. Mm-hmm. How does this Jewish and Christian material get into the Quran, and why do we have these repeated versions of the same thing, everything different? Now, for a long time, um, you know, the way that critical scholars would answer the first half of that question is, well, Muhammad borrowed. So uh, Jewish scholars like uh, Abraham Geiger, the great kind of Jewish scholar of Islam, and other critical scholars went, well, clearly what happened is when Muhammad set out to write the Quran, he, um, you know, he took these these traditions, the Bible, and other things, and then rewrote the stories. The problem with that is there's no word-for-word correspondence. And of course, if you want to see what word-for-word correspondence looks like, look at the New Testament, where the reason that we know that, you know, for example, Matthew and Luke use Mark, is you can line the text of Mark up in places with the text of Matthew and Luke, and you can see there's clearly textual influence, quite easy to show. That doesn't exist for the Quran. So what's going on? Well, the more and more, the more and more recent study that's been done on the culture of Arabia around the time of Muhammad is we, we're pretty convinced it was an oral 
culture. Writing hasn't really taken root. The Bible's not probably available actually in Arabic. And in fact, you know, what the what the culture before Muhammad is known for is oral poetry, the great Bedouin um, kind of oral epic poetry that's uh, been bequeathed to us. So we've got an oral culture. Now in oral cultures, what's fun about that is we actually know a lot about how oral cultures operate. Really, mm-hmm. since the beginning of the 20th century, there's been incredible work done on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of oral cultures around the world. And there are two, a couple of interesting things in oral cultures. Firstly, um, you have a phenomenon known as a formulaic composition. Now, that sounds complicated, but it's actually pretty simple. It basically says that if you're an oral person trying to perform or preach or tell a story in front of an audience, um, you can't necessarily memorize it word for word because the human memory is not necessarily that good. But what you tend to do is you use these little short building blocks, formulaic phrases that you can throw in and use as kind of building blocks for something longer. Now, we're not an oral culture today in the West. Of course, we have we have writing, but we do have echoes of this. So, for example, if a small child were to come to you or to me and say, you know, Nick or Andy, can you tell me the story of the of the three little pigs? How would you start that fairy story, Nick? What was the first thing you would say when you tell a fairy tale? A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Well, that's, yes, that's good. There's a Star Trek fan, the Star Wars fan, and you coming. Or you might say once upon a time, or that kind of thing. That's a that's a formula. You don't know that you haven't memorized that. You've just been sh- you, you know your parents told stories that way. Their parents told them and so forth. Well, oral cultures are full of hundreds and thousands of these short phrases that you can use again and again and again. And one of the things we discovered on other oral cultures is you can take a text that comes from this kind of background and you can analyze it, see what kind of percentage of the text is made up of these short phrases that are recycled again and again and again and again. And the first work this was done on was uh, was Homer, the uh, the Greek poet, not the little yellow cartoon guy. And uh, his poems, the, the Odyssey and the Iliad, were found to be incredibly formulaic. About 25%, 30% of the text was actually built this way. Now, mm-hmm. fast forward to the Quran. When I began studying the Quran, I noticed these kind of short, repeated phrases turning up all over the place. I'd been reading up on oral culture for another project, and I thought, hello, this is interesting because we know that Arabia is oral. In fact, Muslims love to boast that Muhammad didn't have access to reading and writing. Uh, Muslims have used that as an apologetic for years. Muhammad was illiterate, so how could he produce the Quran? I was thinking, I, I wonder what would happen if we subjected the Quran to that particular test. And to cut a long story short, I wrote some computer software because um, I got a background in IT, and which actually grew into this digital stuff I talked about uh, earlier. And we were able to analyze the entire Quran in multiple ways. And the practical upshot is that somewhere between 40 and 50% of the Quran is composed this way. It's almost double the, the, the density of, of, of Homer's poems, which nobody questions are composed this way. It's a very strong clue that the Quran was first created in performance by an oral person, the way that oral people work all around the world. But there's, that would be interesting enough, but there's even more evidence because the other thing we see in orality is a phenomenon that goes like this. Let's imagine a little child were to come to you, Nick, and say, do you have children, by the way, or, or, or do you not? We don't. Although my, know, okay. my humorous so, answer could have been, yes. I mean, it would have been a different oh, way. It's just how I contextualize the example. That's why I So nephew, niece, you know, child of a friend comes to you and says, Nick, Nick, or Uncle Nick, whatever, can you tell me the story of the three little pigs? And you say, well, a long time ago in a galaxy far away, there were three pigs and a big bad wolf and a Jedi. And you, and you tell that story. 
and they love it so much, the next day they come to you and ask for the story again, and you, and you tell them again. And we happen to record both tellings, and then we take those recordings, we mm. transcribe them and compare them. Now, what's going to happen is those two stories will not be exactly the same, What's unless you've memorized that particular story. Well, there might be three wolves, uh, three pigs and a wolf and various things, but the, the, the basic story will be the same, but the wording will be different. You have created what, in the, the technical term for that, is a performance variant, mm-hmm. a variant version of the story caused by the fact you have performed it, not memorized it. Mm-hmm. And when you find that in a tradition, it's a very strong indicator that you're dealing with, with orality. And yeah. think back now to Ibn Sinadim and the Quran. Seven versions of the same story. Some short, some long, every, every time they're different. And we have other examples in the, across the Quran where that happens. The Quran will tell the same story in different, in different language. And so you put those two things together, and it's a very powerful piece of evidence that Muhammad was doing what oral, oral storytellers have done since time immemorial. And then, final piece of evidence for you, when you turn to the Hadith, What's interesting, time and time again, we hear these stories that Muhammad was able to apparently produce Quranic passages on demand. So, you know, a situation arises and he can just go, well, okay, the Quran says. Now, of course, Muslims have always tried to say, well, that's because Gabriel prepared him for that. You put it together with these other pieces of evidence, and it looks very much like Muhammad was an oral yes. storyteller. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have the method that the Quran was put together, it explains why it looks the way it does, the shape of the way it was, and it explains the method by which Muhammad used these these fairy tales and these legends. He heard, you know, Muhammad probably heard the story of Iblis and Adam, you know, floating around the marketplace there in Mecca. You know, perhaps a Jewish person had told it to an Arabian person who thought it was a great story. Muhammad hears it and goes, oh, that's a fantastic story. And, uh, you know, a few weeks later he's preaching and he uses it. And he uses it again and again and again, and it turns up there in the Quran. It explains what it's doing there, the form it's taken, and uh, and why we have these multiple versions. No need for any divine intervention um, at all. It's a purely human product, which actually, when you when you study it carefully, is shouting at you, "This is how I was made." You know, I, I have to say a few things. First off, I did have to go over Star Wars reference. My wife is a much is really much more of a fan, but I, I went with her to Stephen Emu. We had a gift card yesterday, so I had to have some fun when you gave me a, that open-ended question. How can oh, I have some fun with it? And, and secondly, what I'm thinking is you, well, you see, we can look at this and we can see how it was human, no divine ideas needed and such. And I, my first thing that is, couldn't someone say the exact same thing about the Bible? We can show how it came back humanly. I mean, we can see all these things being copied and such in it. So maybe the Bible is 100% human in origin and not divine at all. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I think what you can then do is uh, you do a number of things. You can firstly, this comes back to to the claims mm. that are made about a, about, a, about a given text. So one of the things I say is interesting, right? Take take purely orality, for example. Yeah. One of the things that, that, that this oral approach uh, does that is very very interesting. I don't talk about this in the book because this now pushes it, into, it pushes it into apologetics. See, for a long time, one of the things that critics have said of the Bible have gone, well, the gospel, you know, that the gospels. So says the skeptic. When were were written, you know, years after the events, decades after the events. For a long time, critics mm-hmm. were, you know, pushing the gospels way past seventy A.D. and you know, long, long time after Jesus and the eyewitnesses. Well, here's the interesting thing. You can actually use this kind of oral literary approach that I've just described on the Gospels, and it works quite well, especially around things like the parables, where we sometimes have multiple versions of the same the same parable. 
And actually, there's been an increasing move in New Testament studies to going, rather than explain those as one one gospel writer redacting a different version, actually, some of these do look like multiple retellings of the same story, which is very interesting because Jesus was a wandering, oral, itinerant preacher. And like all preachers, you get a good illustration, you're going to use it in multiple sermons. I'm guilty of that. You know, people mm-hmm. who see, you know, sort of follow my stuff online will say, oh, I can't believe you told that story for the 20th time. Well, it's a good story. Um, and, and we Jesus can also say that you and I probably as speakers, we have the same talk we can use over and over, but we yes. never tell it verbatim the same way. No. So the point being is what's interesting, so oral analysis at this point shows us a very early looking feature. It looks in the Gospels as if we had, were in touch with the authentic voice of Jesus mm-hmm. because you've got this these oral features there, which if the Gospels were later literary creations, very hard to explain what that's doing there. So in a sense, you have something that should be there that is there. In the Quran, on the other hand, this thing's supposed to have fallen directly from heaven with no human intervention. It shouldn't have these human features. So you have something that shouldn't be there that, that is. So I like the fact you can use the tool both ways. But then, to your other point, Nick, I, what I want to say to the critic here is I want to be very careful and say, let's be careful what we're saying as, as Christians, especially around the Gospels. And I always want to press into the Gospels because when I'm dealing with a non-Christian, what I want my non-Christian friend to do is read the Gospels and get to grips with, begin grappling with the Jesus they see described there. I want them to be thinking about who did Jesus think he was? What, what was, what was his teaching like? Is this guy, can we take this guy seriously? So what I'm concerned about is, is were the Gospels, are the Gospels reliable? I'm less concerned with, can I find some sort of miraculous proof that they couldn't have a human involvement? I don't have a problem with that because the Gospels, the New Testament claims that yeah. God worked through human authors. What I want to know is, do they have the hallmark of eyewitness testimony? Do they have verisimilitude? Do they, do they look like we can take them seriously? And this is a whole other discussion, but for people who are listening, he wants to press into that. Um, there's a New Testament scholar, an historian called Richard Borkham, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M, Richard Borkham, and his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, is phenomenal in showing how the, the Gospels have an incredible level of detail about the first century events that they purport to describe, such that we really are forced to conclude, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm a Christian, I'm not forced to conclude, I'm excited to conclude, but if you're a skeptic, you're forced to conclude, you're dealing with eyewitness testimony here. So again, it's a case of what they're claiming. Um, the Quran, on the other hand, claims to have no human involvement at all, and so it's hugely problematic when um, when this material turns up, these features that I've described turn up. The analogy I sometimes use, because I appreciate what we've talked about in the last few minutes is quite technical. So mm. one of the, the, the analogy I've, I've sort of come up with that I found helps more lay audiences is this, to go look where I live in the UK, um, unlike North America, we have a lot of history. Um, you guys have a lot of space. We have, a lot of, we have a lot of history. Somebody once said that in the UK, a mile is a long way. 100 miles is a long way uh, in the UK, and 100 years is a long time in America. Oh, we've got a lot of history. It's just now about us. Oh, that's all oh, very good. I like that. Um, but anyway, we have a long history here. And um, where, I live in, where I live in the north of England, not in Scotland, um, lots of mountains around. And I love explore, uh, hiking in the mountains. And occasionally when you're hiking in the mountains in Scotland or in northern England, you'll come across old mine workings, old tunnels where, the, where there's been mining. Now, here's the interesting thing. Some of those mines were dug by the Romans because the Romans were here, you know, 2,000 years ago almost and went digging in the hills for all kinds of things. But also the Victorians liked to do mining as well and dug lots of things out of the mountains. Now, how can you tell the difference between a Roman tunnel and a Victorian tunnel? Well, the answer is quite straightforward because the Romans, the, the Victorians had black powder, you know, the forerunner to, to dynamite, their gunpowder. They would blast, you know, great chunks of the hills out. And, and you can see that type of tunnels, those that digs. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the Romans used picks and shovels 
And when you look at a Roman tunnel, you can still see the pick marks in the rock from the, the, the tools that were wielded 2,000 years ago. And the point of the illustration is that tools leave their marks in the surface that they work on. That's true if you're digging a tunnel or blowing a tunnel up. It's also true if you're constructing a text. And there were scholars to come along and look at it and go, okay, what are the marks left behind? And what does that tell us about how it was constructed? And when you look at the Quran through this lens, it's entirely obvious. It's not even, it's, it's almost not even questionable. It's so obviously something that was constructed in this oral kind of traditional way that, it, you know, when you compare it with things like Homer or the Beowulf story, you know, here in, uh, here in medieval, in, in, in uh, ancient English uh, and so on and so forth, it fits that kind of style of tradition. So the Muslim claim simply does not stand up. And uh, in fact, now it's quite funny when I meet Muslims who tell me sort of, well, Jewy eye, oh, Mohammed couldn't read or write. I go, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Because um, that's why he produced the Quran the way he did. If he was a literate person, it would have looked quite different. Yeah, I had to smile a bit when you referenced Richard Balkum and his great work, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, because, I mean, fans of the show know we like to keep up. November 11th, just last month, we interviewed him on the up updated version of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. So if you want to hear what oh. Dr. Bannister has talked about, just go back a month. <laughs> That's marvelous. Oh, good. Richard's a wonderful scholar. So, so glad you got him on the show. Yeah, and that was even his second time coming on. So, all right. Oh, you're, like doing something, you're doing something right then. <laughs> all these uh, repeat visits. I, I sure hope so. And by the way, I'll tell people we've even talked that with uh, Dr. Hurtado about coming back on again sometimes. So we, we're doing a we're doing a lot of work here. We 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 get we like to get those UK scholars over there. That's a, that's a, that's a awesome, Nick. I'd like to remind everyone also that, I mean, Dr. Bannister is right. We're, we're doing something right here, and we've got a lot of great guests coming on here, and I hope you out there in podcast land and such love to hear it. And if you love to hear it, I hope you'll take part in it. And how do you do that? You go to our website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, all one word, of course. And there's a link on the side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And there's a link in there where you can make a donation, and it takes you to the ministry of Risen Jesus. That's the right place. That's the ministries of my as a ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you go on there and you make your donation, and then you get in touch with me, or my wife Allie, or Mike, or Debbie, one of us, and just say, "Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters." And they will make sure that we that we get your donation. It will be tax deductible. And if you can't do that, you can also go and you can buy books at our bookstore on Amazon. Books I've written or co-written, such as uh, when I've written A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, Defining Inerrancy, which I've co-written, all these others I've co-written, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers of This Generation's Questions, 
And we also have a jewelry store here. Yes, I have a friend who sells jewelry, and she wanted to help out. And she's got it set up so that if you buy jewelry, 25% of whatever you purchase goes to Deeper Waters. Now, guys, let me, let me tell you something. If you've been on my Facebook page, you've seen this story. I proposed to my now wife on Christmas Eve. Christmas can be a wonderful time to pop that question. And you mm. do need that ring. So buy that ring and support a ministry at the same time. And for me, of you married guys, you know the advice I'm giving you. You know it very well here. Go and buy some jewelry that lady in your life to make up that big screw-up that you recently did with her. Or go buy some jewelry for that lady in your life to make up that big screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. <laughs> <laughs> You've been there before, haven't you? <laughs> I've been married for almost 20 years. I mean, this, this is a tangent, but this is Christmas. And the other thing Christmas brings yeah. is bad jokes, right? I love the story of the uh, the, boy, the boyfriend who says to his girlfriend, oh, I've lost, my, I've lost my phone. And so his girlfriend said, well, why don't you, you know, here's my phone. Why don't you ring your phone and, and we'll, we can find it. And, his, and his, the boyfriend went, well, I, I left it on silent. I, tu- I, turned the ring, I turned the tone off. And she looked at him and went, well, if you value something, put a ring on it. <laughs> and I like it, that. yeah, and if you can't do any of these, please just at least go on iTunes and leave a positive review for the Deeper Waters podcast. I love to see it. I really do. It's great to hear what you all think of a show. And again, touch with me if you have any ideas. You have a guest you'd like to have come on. Thanks, man. I'm very open. Now, Doctor Banster, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Yeah, so there's uh there's, there's two organizations. I, I wear two separate hats, really. Um, mm-hmm. Well, two related hats. I work for an organization called the Solas Centre for Public Christianity here in Scotland in the UK. So that's S-O-L-A-S. Mm-hmm. So people, people can look us up. So that's doing kind of apologetics and evangelism here in uh, Scotland. And then I also, about a third of my time, I'm still with the organization I was with for the previous six years, which is Ravi Zacharias International Ministry. So people can go to R-Z-I-M or R-Z-I-M for uh, you Americans, uh, .org. And the organization's in, you know, over a dozen countries around the world. So I would just encourage listeners, if they can't support Solas and they want to support Christian apologetics, look up R-Z-I-M, find the nearest office and uh, and get behind what they're doing. There's this wonderful, well, that's Ravi's name on the organization that has been 40 years. Ravi's done this incredible job building up this team of about sort of 70 mm. now, men and women, working with him all around the world, different ages, different backgrounds, different skill sets. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an incredible team. And uh, they value your support too. Yeah, and the five solas, there isn't that a David Robertson's thing over there or... Am I confused? Well, that's right. So Solas was originally set up by David Robertson, who you've mentioned. So David set Solas up about seven years ago. And then uh, when I moved back from Canada, uh, when, I, when I was serving with RZIM uh, kind of full time, I uh, I came up to Scotland to join David and in fact take over the reins from, from David. David's got his fingers in so many pies, including church planting and all kinds of things that, uh, that, that, that he needed to handle the leadership. So I'm now heading Solas up. And uh, and David, but David's a hugely important member of the team. And Solas is fun, actually. The word Solas uh, is a is a Scottish word, a Gaelic word that means that means the sunrise. Mm. And so we love that imagery of the right, the sunlight of the gospel kind of spreading. But of course, you've also got the you know the the, the, the classic Solas of the Reformation, particularly Sola Scriptura. So it's a very clever play on words there, which is which is fun. Yeah, and David's been on the show before as well. So we we, we try and get oh, everyone we can. David is. Wonderful, yeah. David's David is good news. Talks even faster than I do, though. Now you know when you were talking about this about the Quran, you can show it's just so human and origin yes. and such. I was thinking, 
Well, you know, that's that's interesting, but I'm not sure if that's a total disproof of Islam and such. But then when you mount it up with the claims of Islam, it, it really is a major problem, isn't it? Well, there's a couple of things going on. One is that I that I think the Quran, the, the, that Islam sits on two pillars, right? It sits on, on Muhammad and it sits on the Quran. And those are really the, the, the only two pillars it sits on. There really isn't any other evidence for it. And those two things go together, of course, because the story of Muhammad reinforces the Quran and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And in some ways I say, actually, the, the closest analogy I know to Islam is the is the Mormon faith. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, you know, in, in the Mormon faith, Joseph Smith goes into the woods and has this you know alleged encounter with an angel. No one else sees it. No one else can verify it and produces this kind of magic book that he claims all kinds of things for. And uh, the, the same is true of Islam. Muhammad has this experience. No one else sees this angel. No one else has this experience. Um, and, of course, now has produced this this book. And, the, and that's how the two go together. So just as in the Mormon faith, Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon are the two things to press into. So with Islam, it's the Quran and Muhammad. And so, so my work and the work of Keith and lots of others, I think, is really um, exposing the Quran. And there's other great work being done. I mean, you, you know, one of the things I love about your podcast, Nick, is you know, you really do come across the good scholarship. And another piece of scholar, another scholar I'd recommend listeners who want to explore some of the stuff around Islam to check out. There's a wonderful scholar at Notre Dame called Gabriel Said Reynolds. So Gabriel, as in the angel, Said, S-I-E-S-I-S-A-I-D. And Reynolds, I actually haven't interviewed him yet. I actually haven't. <laughs> track him down. But he's, he's edited and written a number of, I mean, particularly he's written, uh, edited a volume called The Quran and Its Historical Context. And it's got some great material in there looking at the, the way the Quran has particularly used myths and legends and, and fables and um, some really first-class scholarship. Again, it's not even remotely a work of Christian apologetics, but if there are Muslims listening, he's, he's, he's a critical historical Quranic scholar, one of the best in the world. And, uh, and I think the evidence is so overwhelming now, quite frankly, that what's interesting is, is, is a surprising number of Muslims are beginning to recognize they have a problem. So I mentioned near the top of the show that I did this um, this debate, uh, sort of well, not quite a debate, more like a robust dialogue with Shabir Ali, the Muslim apologist, a few weeks ago in in Canada. And and I and I one of the things I brought up in there was that even Shabir himself is recognising that the Quran has myths and legends. And actually, there was an, there was a debate that he did with David Wood. Uh, a couple of years ago, where uh, where Shabir said the Quran is not here to teach people history. The Quran is calling people back to God with legends and myths and, and stories. So Shabir's idea is he's had to accept that the Quran contains legends and fairy tales and myths, but he's he's tried to now adopt the position of going, well, they're like teaching illustrations. You know, it's rather like perhaps, you know, a preacher saying, hey, consider the story of, you know, Cinderella, and let's now draw some spiritual lessons out of this. And I remember looking at Shabir you know, at this university in, uh, in Canada going, but Shabir, your problem is the Quran doesn't say that's what it's doing. Um, the Quran, you know, uses the same way it introduces the story of, you know, Iblis and Adam as it does to introduce the story of, of Jesus. And if I sit down with my, you know, five-year-old daughter and I say, okay, honey, you know, daddy's going to talk, talk to you for a couple, for five minutes about, about, you know, William the Conqueror, an important figure in English history. And I do that five minutes, he literally listens. And I go, and now I'm going to talk to you about Cinderella. And I, and, I tell her, and I don't give her any clues as to which one is historical and which one is not. I've been a terrible educator. The mm-hmm. poor kid doesn't know, well, is one true, is one not yeah. true? That's what the Quran does. So the Quran has huge problems. Muhammad, we're, we're beginning to press in there as well. 
Uh, again, we probably haven't got time to go into this now, but uh, there's a, there was a wonderful book came out uh, about three, uh, two, three years ago now by a Canadian scholar called Dan Gibson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just waiting for you to go. Oh, yeah, I've had that on my show. Um, no, Dan I wrote a book called, Dan wrote a book called Quranic, He wrote a book called Quranic Geography mm-hmm. and has actually done a documentary movie based on that called The Sacred City. So if people Google Dan Gibson, Sacred City, they'll find the documentary on, I think he's got it on, on Vimeo. Uh, you can get the, the digital edition. And basically, in a nutshell, that thesis argues that all of the historical evidence is pointing to the fact that, Mahat, that Islam didn't actually begin in, in Mecca. It actually began way up north in Petra, up there in, in, in modern-day Jordan. And there's multiple lines of evidence, um, including archaeological evidence, actually evidence from within the Quran, if you read it carefully, evidence from the direction of the prayer direction of their oldest mosques, and it's a brilliant book, spectacularly well argued, that stands on multiple lines of evidence. And if Dan's thesis is true, and it, if it's correct, it explains a number of questions that critical scholars have, have had over the years. Dan's done a good job of putting the jigsaw pieces together. Then we now have this other piece of dynamite on the other pillar of Islam, because to go, well, if we can't trust the sources about where Islam began, how on earth can we trust it to tell us anything about the historical Muhammad? Well, and that's before we get into problems of what was Dan's last Sorry, name again? Gibson, G-I-B-S-O-N. Okay. Dan Gibson, and it's the book is called Quranic Geography, but it's a bit of a big fat book. Um, as I say, the movie that it, the documentary that he did based on it is the Sacred City. Dan Gibson, the Sacred City, and. Uh, I would like to let people know as well that uh, he was Dr. Vance was just about Mormonism. Right now, we've been working on this show. I'm finishing a book called Leaving Mormonism by Corey Miller and Scott and uh, Lynn Wilder. They edited, and yes, they will be on the show to talk about Mormonism sometime next year. So if you're interested in that, (laughs) come on back. Now, Dr. Vance, how would you suggest we approach this topic? with our Muslim friends. I mean, it's typical to go out and say, I've got this information, go out with both barrels blasting. So how would you recommend mm. we do this? Yeah, I'd say a couple of things um, there, Nick. I'd say I'd actually generally counsel people against that. I mean, unless you meet a, an academic Muslim who is quite who's quite ready to sort of handle this, like with someone like, say, a Shabir, I would pull no punches. Um, I'd still be very respectful and wanting to, because I want to. I want to win the person, not the argument. But with the average person, the average Muslim in the streets, if you go and dump this stuff on them, firstly, there's a there's a there's a risk of going to full blown defence mode, and and just become very kind of sort of prickly. The other problem is they may not understand it because you're dealing with with academic arguments. So the way I would get into it as a Christian is familiarise yourself with material. You can listen. You know, obviously, listen to the podcast, listen to it again at half speed to get it in the full glory, mm-hmm. and then some of the other sort of stuff that you and I have mentioned, and then begin asking your Muslim friends questions. One of the questions I always like to ask people, and this works for our atheist friends too, right, but certainly for Muslims, yeah. what's your evidence for that? So mm-hmm. if they say they believe the Quran has been un, is unchanged, don't feel you the one who's going to say, well, here are all these textual variants. Go, okay, what's, what's your evidence for that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they believe that Muhammad is a prophet. What's your, what's your evidence for that? And then as you as you ask those, you know, little questions, and I would say, you know, having a five-year-old in the house is great for me because mm-hmm. she's a master at asking why questions mm-hmm. and teaches me as an apologist to ask the why questions, draw this material in where it's useful. But at the same time, find opportunities to talk about Jesus. Because I think one of the things that some of us who are quite enthusiastic in our apologetics can do if we're not careful is we kind of like to tear things down, but we don't build things up. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, yes, the Bible talks about, New Testament talks about tearing down strongholds and, you know, every philosophy that sets itself up against, you know, the revelation against God and, and, and Jesus. But at the same time, you've got to build God and Jesus up. And one, I think one of my all-time favorite apologetic quotations is from Blaise Pascal, the, the French philosopher, the, the philosopher who once said, you know, the, the job of the Christian is to uh, present the Christian faith and talk about Christianity and, and Jesus in such a way that good people wish that it were true and then show them that it is. And sometimes we've got to remember, if we come in too harshly, we lose that attractive quality. So let's make sure as we engage our Muslim friends that we listen, we ask good questions, but we then press in, press in, press in. And at the same time, let them ask us questions. You know, don't be afraid to run from questions. Don't, don't feel you've got to run from questions. I don't think any of you listening to your show would. But I know that was my big lesson back at Speaker's Corner in the 1990s to go that, yeah, I could say to my Muslim friends, bring it on, because there are good yeah. answers. And now it's my turn to ask yeah. you questions. Yeah, I think that's also good since we were talking about Mormons just now to do them because too many times when we go to with, with the cults, for instance, you knock out their Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or whatever it is, they don't come straight to Christianity. They just abandon theism altogether, man. They throw out the baby for bathwater and say, if you're going to kick someone, yes. you kick out someone for crutch that they're using at the time, give them something else they can walk with. Absolutely. I think the other thing very seriously there, it's interesting you mentioned that. I had a, I had a Mormon friend that happened to. I, I hope I wasn't fully, in, I, may, I may have been actually involved in some of it, but you know, learned, learned some lessons, whatever happened. And that was exactly his story. He left the Mormon faith and a few of us got quite excited. But I think we hadn't perhaps been as careful as we might have done. And he's currently in, not sure where he is, um, but yeah, we didn't, we didn't build up Christ at the, at the same time. And then the other thing as well that I think is worth just reflecting on the spiritual dynamic here, I think when people leave Islam or leave one of the cults, there can be a suspicion of religion. They feel lied to, they feel deceived, mm-hmm. and if they're not careful, they transfer that over into all talk about God. And I think it's helping people see, look, just because you've been deceived in one area doesn't mean there isn't truth in another. And in fact, in some ways, the very fact there are counterfeits is perhaps an argument for the real thing, in the sense that uh, you know the, the existence of counterfeit Rolex watches is actually an argument that real Rolex watches exist, because people only bother to counterfeit something real. You don't tend to counterfeit something which is already fake. And yes, it can be you know disappointing to realise that you've you know you've been lied to or deceived or you backed the wrong thing. But I always want to encourage people press on in. And there are some great stories about that about how that happened. I mean, my you know my late friend uh, Nabil Qureshi's story, Seeking uh-huh. Allah, Finding Jesus, yeah. or Abdu Murray's yeah. book, Grand Central Question, which has Abdu's testimony in. He's a former Muslim as well. Yeah, funny really you mention Abdu Murray. You want to know something interesting, there? <laughs> Go ahead. We've interviewed him on that book. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> we could we could play get some sort of some sort of sort of you know sort of a sort of a apologetics uh, sort of a game of poker here, I could sort of name apologists and see if I can find one you haven't interviewed on Deeper Waters, Nick. I, I think you'd win. It seems every name I mention, uh, you go, oh yeah, I've interviewed them. Well, Dr. Manster, it's been great, aren't you? I, I'm, I'm seriously trying to contain my laugh over here because <laughs> the audience needs to hear what you're saying here, but unfortunately, good things do tend to have to come to an end and you got things you got to do, I got things I got to do, but if people want to find out more, what's the... Uh, What's up? Do you have a blog, website, and email where they can get in touch with you if they want to yeah, find out more? Yeah, the best place to go. I, I, I sort of, you can find my material in, in a number of places, but the best place right now, given where I'm, I, I, my, 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 I'm a terribly inefficient blogger, so I won't direct them to my blog because it's embarrassing, but I will direct them to the Solas website. So they can go to Solas, so that's S-O-L-A-S, and then hyphen 
uh, CPC, and that stands for Centre for Public Christianity. So that's solas, S-O-L-A-S hyphen C-P-C dot org. And solas underscore hyphen C-P-C dot org, and they'll find our website. We're about to do a big relaunch on it. it so it looks a little bit dated, but uh, the content is good. But we're doing a big relaunch. And the main thing I direct people there to, there's a lot of fun, uh, under the video tab, I encourage uh, listeners to kind of look at Short Answers. So Short Answers is a video series we've been doing for the last year where myself and David Robertson take our turns in taking a big question, challenging question about Christianity, and we try and do a kind of three to four minute answer. And if three to four minutes is too long for you, people can look me up on Instagram and we have 60 second versions. So we've got someone there on Islam, sort of a, a, a early down the series. So um, so yeah, have a look. They're a great resource. Um, because I know some people listen to things like this, Nick, and go, oh gosh, you know, this is an amazing conversation that Andy and Nick have had, but I can't quite you know, perhaps keep up because they're perhaps new to it. The short answers video is a great place to begin. And do you have any final words you'd like to leave with a Deeper Waters audience today? I think um, I just really, really encourage people to uh, to reach out to Muslims. I think sometimes Christians can have this sort of fear of Islam, fear of Muslims because of the way the media presents things. You know, the media only told the stories of ISIS and goodness knows whatever. And to go, the reality is most people listening to this who have Muslim friends, neighbors, colleagues, classmates, or, you know, mums they meet at the school gate, those Muslims are going to be just ordinary individuals, normal Americans or Europeans who just want to live lives like we do, raise their families, live peaceably, uh, and they just don't know about Christ. They've never met, they've never met somebody who's had the courage to befriend them and share Christ in a way that's meaningful. So I encourage people listening to this to pray. If you're a Christian, prayerfully think about who are the Muslims that maybe I haven't had the courage to go speak to. Go speak to them because amazing things can happen. I've been so privileged to see how God has used me. And if he can use somebody like me, uh, then he can certainly use somebody like uh, any of you listening uh, to this. So, so yeah, go out in confidence and share Christ with passion and conviction. Well, Dr. Banster, it's been great having you on here again. Hopefully you have another book out here soon so we can go and uh, have you come on here again and talk about it. And yeah, I meant to tell people about the book, by the way. The book is An Oral Formulaic Study of the Quran. And I've looked it up here on Amazon, and I'm bringing that right back up right now here. I can't believe I skipped my mind. We were just having so much fun, I think, that I lost track of things. In paperback right now... I'm bringing it up here. It's forty-one ninety-three. The hardcover, if you want to invest, the hardcover is ninety-nine ninety-one, and the Kindle version is thirty-seven twenty-nine. As much as what you suspect, Doctor Master, I don't think the hardcover is something you necessarily have to have at that point. Definitely not. I would. Uh, I would very much say get the paperback version, and uh, and in fact, if uh, yeah, the paperback version is the one to go. So very pleased they released that. They, academic publishers don't always bother doing that. The other thing I'd say to people as well, and my publisher will probably sort of want to sort of shoot me for this, is like if you live near a university library or you have access to one, go to the library. Get a you know get a copy if it, if your library hasn't got it get it through interlibrary loan and it'll cost you nothing mm-hmm. um, kind of thing because probably the only people that actually need to buy this and actually own it are people who are very serious about about studying Islam and I'm happy as a, as a you know as a publisher as an author to see more copies out although I don't get it I don't get a cent for a copy for any copy that's sold on this it hasn't it doesn't academic books don't work like work like that but I'm I'm just excited to see people talking about the arguments but uh, but yeah that's the, that's the place to go get it or say your local library well, I do hope we will see back here again sometime, Dr. Bannister. It's great. I would love to. 
I do mind. Okay, everything. then. Well, wonderful Christmas, uh, Nick. Hope you and Ellie have a wonderful Christmas. Great chatting with you, and happy to come on the show again at some point in the future. We uh, we should definitely uh, do this again. Yeah. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week, Rosaria Butterfield will be our guest on my house story. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>